Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books and subsequently each of our careers went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. All right, welcome to the Publishing Rodeo podcast, where we only occasionally say things that we regret. We have with us today David D.V. Bishop, um, and we're going to talk a, a whole bunch of things, writing career and TV and film. But before we get into that, I'll have David tell us a bit about himself, his career, and set the stage. Uh, thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, lovely to be here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so my name is David Bishop, and I've been writing for a very long time. I grew up in New Zealand. I've got a very well-travelled accent as a consequence of which I've lived in the UK 33 years and in Scotland 23 years, and yet there's not a trace of Scots in my accent whatsoever. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I grew up in New Zealand and a voracious reader, as I think pretty much every writer I ever met was a voracious reader when they were younger. Yeah. And... Um, and then straight from high school, I did a six-month course as a journalist and became a daily newspaper journalist, which I did for, I guess, four and a half, five years. And then I immigrated to the UK in 1990, which is probably before either of you was born. <laughs> Not quite. There we Not go. quite. Yeah. Um, and then I fell in with a bad crowd. I got involved in comics. I became a comics editor. So I worked on the Judge Dredd magazine, which for people who don't know Judge Dredd, he's a future lawman character played in a regrettable mid-90s film starring Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> which I can't really recommend. I mean, it's lovely production design, but that's about it. Um, and uh, and then more successfully by Carl Urban in a film called 2012 called Dread, which I do recommend. is very good. So yeah, so I was the editor of the uh, Judge Dread magazine for five years, and then I became the editor of 2018. For those people who don't know comics, 2008 is effectively the mothership of British comics for the past 46 years, I think it's been running. Uh, and it helped launch or springboard the careers of pretty much every major British comics creator. Gosh, okay. Uh, Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, Brian Bolland, uh, Grant Morrison, Garth Ennis, Mark Miller, Frank Quitely, many, 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 many more. The list goes on. So essentially, uh, 2008 is a weekly anthology comic of science fiction and fantasy and a few other weird things wandering now and then. So it's been the stepping stone for a lot of creators to uh, make their way as um, professional comics creators. So I worked on that, on those two titles through the 90s. And during the 90s, I also started to write tie-in books. So because the Stallone film was coming, a company called Virgin Books, uh, who at that point published Doctor Who fiction and erotic fiction, which was they described in their writer's guides as book to be, books to be read one-handed. 
Uh, obviously, this was <laughs> literally said that in the writer's guide. Uh, this was life before Fifty Shades, but basically it was Fifty Shades uh, before it became hugely successful. And they wanted to do uh, Judge Dredd tie novels, and they needed anybody who knew anything about Judge Dredd to write novels for them. Uh, and Virgin was very unusual in the 90s in that they had an open-door policy. You didn't need an agent to approach them or to pitch them. If you wanted to write a Doctor Who novel, you could literally just send in your idea for a Doctor Who novel. If you wanted to write erotica, you could just send in your idea for erotica, whatever whatever floated your boat at the time. So as a consequence, uh, Virgin Books, because you didn't have to have an agent to get work with them, uh, they attracted a lot of young writers who were breaking into the industry. So people like Mark Gattis, who's now best known for things like League of Gentlemen and Sherlock with Stephen Moffat and uh, many other things as well. And writers like Paul Cornell and quite a few others as well, and Andy Lane, etc. So, uh, so they were desperate for anybody who could write Judge Dredd, and I always wanted to write novels. The first novel I wrote, if we don't count my childhood fan fiction, where I wrote myself into Famous Five Enid Blyton mysteries, or James Bond Three and a Half when he was thirteen years old and he was fighting crime. But anyway, so I got to write Judge Dredd novels for Virgin, and this is so long ago I wrote them on a electric typewriter. It's before I even had access to a personal computer. This is how long ago we're talking. I didn't even have carbon paper, for God's sake. So there was literally only one copy of the manuscript. This is how Dickensian it all was. Hmm. Um, so yes, I used, I used to get up at five in the morning and write for a couple of hours and then go in and edit comics for the rest of the day. And so I wrote my first novel in 10 weeks and handed it in, physically got into the taxi, went to the publisher's office and handed them the big box with the manuscript inside it. Just like in the movies. Honestly, it was... It was, it was just like, and you handed it to them, and that's when my first dream was shattered, because they literally just took it from me. I went, oh, okay, and they just stuck it on the pile of all the other manuscripts that were set behind them, because, of course, we didn't have email at that point. These days, it would just arrive in their inbox and just get tagged, must read later, and then be ignored for another six weeks, because publishing works in its own peculiar time frames. Um, so, yeah, so I wrote three, doc uh, three Judge Dredd novels for Virgin. I eventually got to write a Doctor Who novel, which was my dream job called Who Killed Kennedy, which is all tied into the fact that Doctor Who launched the day after Kennedy was assassinated uh, back in 1963. And so that was the whole premise of the book. And then I quit comics in the year 2000, moved to Scotland, went freelance as a self-employed writer and started writing everything you could lay your hands on. So I wrote more Doctor Who, more Judge Dredd novels. I wrote a Nightmare on Elm Street novel. I wrote audio dramas with Doctor Who and Sarah Jane Smith and Sapphire and Steel and God, something else. And computer games and comics and graphic novels and a lot of journalism as well. So I did a ton of writing, but I wanted to write for telly. I wanted to write for TV and I'd had a couple of opportunities because I'd been successful in other areas. And so I got opportunities to write for TV and made a complete horlicks of it. I would be the polite description of what I mess call it that and so I thought right if I want to write for TV I need to go off and get some training because I know I can write and I know I can tell stories but there's peculiarities to screenwriting for film or for television that are very specific so I did a master's in screenwriting part-time uh, which I funded through writing um, my various writing gigs and then off the back of that I started writing radio dramas for the BBC and then TV dramas for the BBC for a continuing drama series over here called Doctors which is on in the afternoons. And yeah, so I did screenwriting for about five years and I got burnt out on prose because I was writing so much stuff through the noughties. 
I once calculated I had 600,000 words published in the year 2004 mm. in various media. And then only half a million the next year, which actually sounds like a bigger number than 600,000. But anyway, that's numbers for you because I was studying my MA at the time. And I got completely burned out because I was shitting out tie-in novels is what it boils down to. Uh, because if you're going to write for tie-ins, generally speaking, um, you're going to have to write fast. And a lot of tie-ins these days, you just get your fee. It's work for hire. You get a flat rate. Some books you get a royalty. Some books you don't. But we can talk about that later if you're interested. So, yes, I did a lot of tie-ins and I got burnt out. And also a lot of my tie-in avenues were uh, the contracts were winding up. The publishers were getting out of the business. So I went to screenwriting for a few years. And did that and got as far as I seemed able to do or had the enthusiasm to do, frankly. Because one of the problems with screenwriting is it's not like you can self-publish your screenplay and people are going to rush out and buy it on Kindle. It's not really a marketplace for that. So whereas if you write a novel and no traditional publisher wants to publish it, no small press wants to publish it, no indie wants to publish it, well, you can still self-publish it yourself and try and do things with it. So, so yeah, so I was writing screenplays and they were being read by my agent and two other people. And that would be six months of your life. And they would just go, yeah, no. And then that six <laughs> months of your life just goes in the bin and you can move on to the next six months of your life. And I found that quite soul-destroying because I'd spent so long under contract, writing for contract, knowing that it was going to come out. It was a guaranteed piece of work. And with Tally, it was all guaranteed work once you got the gig. Then that was it. You had six weeks to write five drafts of a script and then you were done. Move on. So, so yeah, so I, yeah, I got to a point with screenwriting where I was disillusioned would be the polite description. So I thought, right, well, let's go back to what I actually loved doing, which was writing prose fiction. And now I write historical thrillers, which are set in Renaissance Florence, featuring a, a queer detective called Cesare Aldo. Uh, he enforces the law for the most feared criminal court in the city, and yet at the same time, his sexuality means that he's outside the law at the same time. So that's the, the dilemma that Aldo has in all his situations that he gets into. I guess last week as we're recording this, um, I won the Crime Writers Association Historical Decker, which is this, not that it's going to show up on the podcast, but this weird stabby trophy that they gave me. It's very shiny, very sharp, and very heavy. And it's, I, even if you didn't stab somebody with it, blunt force trauma could be done. Uh, so anyway, I saw that so on Twitter. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. I've not read a huge amount of Judge Dredd, although I did used to own a bunch of the comics, a bunch of 2000 AD stuff, but I did play for years and years in Slay Industry RPGs, which are based very strongly <laughs> off Judge Dredd. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, you know, to the point where I almost think it's violating copyright, but yeah. So weirdly, sort of <laughs> tangentially familiar with that setting. Yes. Well, that's like the first um, the first Robocop film came out and was blatantly the writers of it were quite honest about the fact that they were just... It's a tribute. It's a novel Rob. <laughs> it's just, you know, when he walks up and says, I am the law, or most of Robocop's dialogue is just straight out of dread. Um, so there you go. Which meant they, they killed the film for five years afterwards. So, so yes, that's me. Yeah, that was a very good summary. Uh, you've done that before, I think. <laughs> <laughs> So just possibly. Yeah, right. So I mean, you answered a lot uh, partially answered a lot of questions I came into this with uh in your introduction, but I am interested in I suppose both TV and film and IP 
freelance work, right? Which you've done. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know some people in our industry do, you know, other writers in our uh, science fiction and fantasy space. Some of them have gotten quite involved with especially freelance and IP work. But to be honest with you, I have no idea. Like, uh, and, and it sounds like there are quite a few drawbacks and not as broad of a market for TV, et cetera, and film. But I have no idea how one even gets started in that, other than some people have said, well, if you're interested in IP, just tell your agent and they can go out and hunt for something. But uh, maybe maybe we start with TV and film. If one were interested uh, in going basically the opposite direction you did and diversifying the type of work and number of things they, they had their fingers in and going from novels to TV or film, how would one even get started? How does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, like any creative industry, there's a load of gatekeepers is really what it boils down to. Yeah. So you have to make a choice yeah. uh, whether how you're going to go about something and how you are going to approach it. So, I mean, in my case, I went off and did a master's in screenwriting. Yep. Uh, and we can talk about later whether or not you need a degree in, of any sort whatsoever to write. Talk about it now. Of... Oh, okay. All right. We'll do that now. But... Well, I mean, because uh... that, that's that's really my question, right? Is like in in with novels, the path to becoming an author sucks but we know what it is right like you write something you try to get an agent and then your agent tries to sell it and you can you can fail at any any stage but the path is somewhat known but you obviously did a you know you did a master's degree uh in this area to get work and it sounds like it worked but is that what you have to do is that how you uh you know get get your first break in in tv and film writing uh, or do you just have to know the right person? I, I just have no idea how it works from step one to to becoming part of a, a uh, writer's room. Yeah. Okay. So there's a fundamental difference in the TV marketplace in the UK versus the US. Okay. So I'll talk about them separately. Yeah. Yeah. So the US, you have the writer's room system. Mm -hmm. And sort of traditionally, pre-COVID, how it used to be was uh, you wrote a bunch of screenplays. And actually, this is true of both sides of the Atlantic. You write a load of original screenplays yeah. to demonstrate your your talent, your skills, and your unique voice as a writer. Sure. And then, if you're lucky in TV, you'll be hired to write so you sound like somebody else. Huh. So you have to demonstrate your originality and your fresh voice and your new perspective. And then you have to ventriloquize other people's characters and other people's stories and the you know, how actors speak if you're going for TV writing. Yeah, sure. So if, there's a fundamental difference between film and TV. So TV, you are writing to production for the most part, but you write what's called a calling card script. So you will write uh, a screenplay of the sort of length uh, of the show that you want to write for. So if you were writing for, I don't know, a network show in the US on CBS, for example, then it's going to be in five acts. It's going to be 42 minutes long of screen time with commercial breaks to get it up to an hour. Uh, and so there's certain parameters and expectations of what's going to happen and how it's going to be structured. So let's say you wanted to write for, uh, name me a, a, a current hit US TV show that's not on a streamer. No, you're asking the two people who don't watch a lot of television. Um, I have I have young children and so does she. Severance. So, uh, <laughs> Severance. Yeah. Severance is on a streamer, though. Uh, the only one I can think of that I watch that's kind of like a guilty pleasure show that's not on a streamer but is on a network is, God, what's the name? The Rookie? Yeah, with, okay. With what so, a, yeah, that's with, uh, with Nathan Fillon. That's the yeah. one, yep. 
yeah okay so yeah so for something like that let's say you want you desperately wanted to write for the rookie the rookie was your favorite show you'd love to write for the rookie yeah sure now in america what you can do is you can write a, a spec script actually for a show like the rookie the weird thing is you don't write a spec script for the show that you want to write for yeah you write one that's in the vicinity of the show you want to write because that would be ip some... infringement right <laughs> because that would, and, and, and the first thing they would say is we can't read your rookie script because yes. you know then we get into trouble Correct. I mean, in the olden days with uh, Next Generation and Voyager and things, they actually used to look at some of those scripts mm. before Paramount, I guess, said, no, for the love of God, please stop looking at spec scripts for the actual show. This is a nightmare of legalities. <laughs> so, yeah, so you write a sort of a show that's a lot like The Rookie, but not The Rookie that you invent of your own. Or you write something that's, I don't know, you write for Blue Blood or something else, another mm-hmm. CBS procedural cop cop lawyer show and that's your agent will then try and you know use that to get you gigs in u.s writers room in the uk it's different we don't have there's a little bit of the writers room system but not as it is in the u.s so what we have there's a big obviously the writers guild are on strike in america at the moment Mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of reasons one of which is the threat of ai and creativity which is its own separate conversation but another one is there's the american production companies have been trying to move away from the writers room system where writers are employed full-time to work on a show yeah. as uh, whatever it is, script producer, whatever the name that you get. Uh, and then on top of that, you get your script fee as well. So you're in the writer's room, you break all the episodes of a season as a collective and throwing ideas out, and then hopefully you get one of the episodes to write as a script yourself. So you get the money for that, and you get paid to be on staff as well at the same time. Yeah. And there's other jobs involved. And what they've been trying to do in the US is bring in a mini-room system so they will just get, we'll just employ you for two weeks to smash out ideas for six scripts. And you may or may not get the gig at the end of that. You may just get your, your two weeks of pay and then you get kicked to the curb. And we get the ownership of the ideas that you said in the room. So we've employed you for those two weeks and we get all of your creativity. And that's, it. And that's sort of the UK system, hmm. which is you can spend a day or two days or two weeks in a, in a mini room banging out ideas for the season of whatever the show is. And then at the end of that, you might not get a job. They might not employ you to write a script. So you can have spent those two weeks or however many days in the room pitching ideas, helping them shape the season, and that's it. They just kick you out of the room and you're gone. And so it's a system called the mini room, and it's basically the way most British TV dramas that are not single author written, what's called an author drama. So one person writes the whole thing. That's the exception. That's quite British, and you almost never see that in the U.S., I think the exceptions is Babylon 5, famously, whole chunks of that were written by J. Michael Straczynski. Oh, well, he, uh, really random tangential question that, that probably only interests me. Why the heck are UK shows like six to eight episodes a season? Because that, uh, that really f- threw me when I moved here and I was like, I'm used to my seasons being 22 episodes long. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, because we don't have a writer's room system, so you don't have eight people in a room who, who, who work their way through the entire thing. Because it's only one person writing all of the episodes, that would just break them. You know, six episodes, eight episodes might be their whole year that they've spent writing those episodes. Because you often have one person writes the whole story, like a novel, effectively. It's a novelistic approach. Uh, because we never had the writer's room system that they had in the US that enabled them to produce 22 episodes a season, as it was, or 24 in the olden days. Well, um, so you needed to have that many writers in order to get the job done. In the UK, the tradition for drama was single writer, six episodes, eight episodes. Yeah. So, so in your in your example of 
they pull somebody in to suck all of their creativity out for two weeks and then roll with that who takes it from there you know who 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 goes from whatever weird ideas and and half-assed drafts that are produced in a two-week span and turns it into an actual script slash show all right so in the mini room example no scripts are written in the room yeah. it's just ideas yeah they just break story so they break story down to scenes and sequences and acts and uh, writers will pitch, and they're, they're having decided what the shape of the season is and where each character is going to progress over a season. Yeah. Then they will then uh, often you will have to stand up at the end and pitch your idea for an individual episode. So I actually did this uh, in a mini room in the UK, and I made such a mess of it. I honestly I could hear the words coming out of my mouth. I was apologising before I started pitching. I just went. This is not going well. <laughs> everybody be really supportive. And then at the end of that, we all had to walk back to the train station and everybody just walked ahead of me. It was like I was the, the you know, I was the the one in the herd with the broken leg that was being left behind. <laughs> everybody just walked ahead of me. And then I had a four hour train journey to get home. Just like, oh God, that didn't go well. I just went, I am never hearing from them again. That's the end of that job. And yeah, I got paid for my two days in this case and uh, and never heard from them again because i just i didn't literally spend two days kicking around these ideas and all of that and at the end of it everybody pitches their ideas for an episode and because i was new on the show uh i didn't have an established rep whereas other people this was a, a what's called a pre-teen show so it's aimed at seven to twelve year olds effectively uh in the uk so the sort of thing that would be on nickelodeon i guess or one of the disney kids channels disney junior or whatever it's called now um Anyway, so, uh, yes, and the other people on the episode, uh, on the on the writer's room, I looked them up. I made the mistake of looking at IMDb before I arrived, and I discovered nobody had less than 45 episode credits to their name, and I had two. And I just went, oh, and I just psyched myself out so badly. Anyway, to answer your question, Scott, um, uh, what will happen is they will assign, if you pitch a story successfully, they will ask, they will commission you to write a draft of it. And then if your draft, shows enough promise they will ask you for another draft and they'll give you notes and it's an iterative process thereafter gotcha. um i when i was writing for doctors uh on that if you didn't get it right by the second script uh you could very easily be fired off your story that you pitched i worked on another show called river city and i got fired off that i wrote a 75 page first draft and then my script editor phoned up and the first thing they said to me was sorry that's never the first word you want to hear out of the mouth of your script editor in TV because it's not going to go well after that. And then they took me through the notes for my script about what the exec producer wanted changed. And the only thing I can remember is that apparently he said he wanted the characters to be heightened but grounded. And I just thought, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and then I knew I was going to be fired, but they were contractually obliged to... <laughs> me to write two drafts so that was on a thursday and i had to hand my new 70 my page one rewrite 75 page draft i had five days to write a new draft handed in on tuesday so they could fire me on wednesday and that was my weekend that's what i spent the weekend doing writing a script so i could be fired and get my kill fee which was half the fee i would have got if the episode had gone into production and you just get replaced by a more experienced writer so it's a very it's a particularly cutthroat industry in the UK. So, I mean, we obviously we spend a lot of time in this podcast kind of joking about how bleak 
tried publishing is, but that, that sounds like several levels of hell worse to me. And I just kind of wonder, you know, you've come from that background, and now you're coming into novels from various angles, and how you find trad publishing compares to that. Um, if it kind of bring, do you just look at it and go, oh, yeah, I've seen worse <laughs> every day? And <laughs> oh yeah, oh god, oh my god, it's so polite. Everybody's so polite. Like it's just like they're so nice. I mean, you know, if you're being ghosted, it's not nice. You know, if if the radio silence kicks in and you're just like, I can't get any replies to anything, and you know, your agent can't get any replies, then then that tells its own story. But you know, even even when you're getting completely shit canned, it's done perfectly politely yeah um uh whereas you know film and tv it's the other end of the spectrum are absolutely can be you know there's i mean there are i'm sure there are plenty of uh, me too stories in publishing but by comparison to the likes of weinstein some of the other predators that have been prowling that um, and yes there are in some of the publishing and certainly there are in journalism god forbid but yeah by comparison trad publishing is so nice and polite and genteel certainly in the uk I can't speak for the U.S. because I haven't worked in no, directly in I, I would agree. I, I think, I mean, every day I see someone getting upset on Twitter about some, you know, rejection of career trenches, and I do understand that because the trenches put your brain in this terrible place. But I do think industries, like, if you're trying to be a musician and you get a rejection, rejection is you get booed off the stage, and you know, or people walk out of a show if you're a comedian and stuff like that. And I, I do think, actually writing probably for trad publishing for novels we have some of the gentlest rejections out of any creative industry yeah yeah, yeah the heckling is very polite <laughs> um you know whereas it's which is why of course then when you get to i don't know uh you you make the mistake of opening up goodreads when you've got your new book has just come out and then you just see a load of i don't know dnfs next to your name and you're just like oh god that is the equivalent of somebody walking out of your show dnf it's it's the straight correlation there so no i mean by comparison to 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 telly uh writing for telly no trad publishing is it's incredibly slow i mean there are glaciers that have that have retreated faster than, than publishing <laughs> literally these um, days yeah well literally these days geez, no they're on speed dial huh. uh but no 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 i think trad publishing i mean the weird thing was when I was doing all my time work, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a literary agent for books until 2019. And I, my first novel, uh, August this year will be the 30th anniversary of my first novel being published. But all of the time books I did was without a literary agent. I mean, partly because Virgin looked at somebody, they were willing to look at people who didn't have agents. But even when I moved on to other publishers of time books, I didn't have agents for any of that work. But of course, time work and IP work, it's generally speaking, it's boilerplate contract. There's nothing to negotiate. You are working with other people's characters, other people's concepts. You have to bring all your creativity and all the rest to it. But if you invent, I don't know, the next incredible thing in your, I don't know, let's say you do a tie-in book of Saw novel for some reason, or, you know, Insidious 16 or whatever the next thing's going to be. But if you're doing that, and if you invent some great new character and then they import that into the movie, the next city is 17 you're not going to get paid for that character that you invented that reconfigured insidious and took it into a bold new direction you surrender your rights to your creativity in that particular piece of work so that's the deal that's what you sign up for but you should walk into it with your eyes wide open and if you do have an agent then they can offer you some protections from that agent but it's the reality is it's a boilerplate contract the terms are the terms and you can almost never negotiate better terms for yourself and there's certainly no white rights that you can withhold. That's not within your power to do. 
even if you got the base date, even if you got Juliet Mushins as your agent, you're doing tie-in work. That's uh, the deal is the deal, and you take it or you don't take it, and there'll be somebody in the queue behind you who wants the gig. Yeah, and there's there's two questions I'd ask off that. I mean, the one is I'll, I'll get into the kind of income side later if you're willing, but the first one is you know, across thirty years, do you think? I mean, obviously there have been more agents, more gatekeepers over time. Do you think that's changed the landscape of how people get into publishing? And do you think that that's kind of basically a good thing or a bad thing or neither? I think the fundamental things that have changed is, first our agents are on the internet now. You don't have to send a physical manuscript to anybody for the love of God. So that has made life a lot easier. I think the level of connectivity and the ability and social media outreach enables you to find out a lot more about what agents do want there's a lot of demystification i think has happened over the last 10 years particularly which i think has altered the benefit of writers there's so much more information available than there was even five years ago and podcasts like like yours really help to if anybody's sufficiently intrepid to go out and find podcasts like this then they're like yes because this will tell you an awful lot of things to avoid and some of your guests have said well i wish i'd listened to them publishing radio podcasts before i went and signed that particular deal because i um but you know we've all been there uh we all have regrets um of one form or another and so yeah so i think the amount of information available is much better i think self-publishing i mean so i i run the creative writing programs at edinburgh Navy university in scotland uh in fact one of your previous guests is joining us as a colleague next month uh, nick binge is is joining our, our teaching team next month okay, cool. he is oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to working with him it's going to be great great writer. um yeah and uh, yeah, I know the moment where, he, where you get, you know, a uh, praise quote from Stephen King, you're like, okay, that is just taking it up a level for, for goodness sake. Sorry, what was my point? I was talking about nothing, creative writing. No, I've lost the thread completely now. Okay, so gatekeepers. Yeah. So when I when we started the, the creative writing program was 2009 and we're like the only genre loving program that you can go on. We get a ton of US students come to us because if you wanted to do an MFA in creative writing in the US, God forbid you want to have an elf or a spaceship in it. I mean, that's, you might as well just go and piss on the chips of the great American novel, not to be born. So yeah, so when we started that program, it was 15 years ago now, and, you know, self-publishing was still a dirty word at that point. You know, we didn't have the iPad. Uh, Kindle had just emerged. The first Kindles were just out there. But really, we didn't have... Uh, now you can legitimately have a self-publishing career in certain genres as long as you're able to pump out enough work and feed the beast. And you can make really good money doing that. Um, so that, so I'm working in crime now. There are crime writers who have never been traditionally published uh, and who have sold close to 10 million books now in one format or another. You know, So they have complete control over their, uh, their, their canon of work and how it's distributed and it goes into proper... It's in actual bricks and mortar bookshops and printed copies and all the rest. It's not just e-books. So they've gone past the point where they're dependent upon Amazon to keep them in you know money so that simply didn't exist so things have changed dramatically over the past 30 years i mean obviously you have the the massive consolidation of traditional publishing down to the big five in uh the uk and probably the us i guess so that has an impact on what's available and the land grab of rights that you're willing to surrender or that you're told you must surrender if you want to get a contract it's going to be world rights all languages the list goes on of all the things that you must uh, be willing to give up if you want to give this contract. So that's oh, we know. That's one of the <laughs> we know all about the. But for the most the, part, I would say things are better. Yeah, but there isn't doubt. 
So I, I do, and you don't have to answer this if it uh, ventures into uncomfortable territory, but I do have to ask about the financial side of novels versus TV, film, what have you, because I think there are a lot of novel writers out there, even published, traditionally published authors out there who are eyeing TV and film thinking it's their, perhaps, their next best avenue to to making an actual living as a writer. Would you like to disabuse people of that notion and, <laughs> <laughs> and or tell us how that might work for people uh, if that is an option? Okay, right. Well, I mean, it depends what you're writing, what audience you're writing for, the length of the script, because you get paid in the UK. I can only speak to the UK because I haven't written for telly in the US, so I can't speak to the, the amount of money that's available there because they have the writer's room system. So you're on staff, so you're, you're, I believe you're salaried, and then you get a script fee on top of that. So that's a different system from the UK. I can only speak to my experience of the UK. Yeah, and in the sure. UK, it can vary wildly. So, for example, I did some, um, I wrote for some preschool shows in the UK, uh, so aimed at zero to six, effectively. And if you wrote, uh, so the scripts there, they're only, the shows are only 11 minutes long. So therefore the script's only 11 pages long, hmm. which is like, that's that's not a lot of work, frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, you can knock one of those off in the weekend if you're really lazing about. I mean, there's more involved in that. But generally you're writing for a pre-existing format for certain expectations. Was it Ben and Holly? <laughs> no random guess, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, I, I wrote for a show called Nina and the Neurons, which is a weird combination of an actress is playing Nina, who's a scientist character. Then they have real children come into the studio and interact and do experiments with Nina, who's an actress pretending to be a scientist. And then they have CGI characters who represent the five senses inside the brain of Nina. So it's a very odd very show. Very classic British uh, weird to, show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of one you think, how many drugs would, did they have to take to come up with this? Because it's just like, what? But the budget, because it was made in-house by the BBC, the budget was so tiny that um, you were only allowed to have... So the CGI was quite expensive for them to do, to lip-sync the mouths of the neurons speaking with the dialogue. So you were only allowed to have 11 lines of dialogue spoken by the CGI characters where we could see their mouths. <laughs> Otherwise, we had to see the back of their heads while they were talking because we couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't afford to animate the mouth, which is arcane. But then it's preschool, so you're only allowed one three-syllable word per episode as well. Everything else had to be two syllables or less. So if you said stethoscope, that was it. You'd used your, your one three-syllable word of the episode. Neither and you, that was an in-house show, and I was getting £300 an episode. So whatever that is in the US, 400 450 bucks an episode. If I'd been writing that for an independent producer who was making the show for the BBC, I would have been getting £2,500 per episode. And that's 10 years ago now when I was doing that. So, in fact, my agent got the, the fee increased to £400 per episode while I was there. So the fee went up by 33%. But if I'd been writing for, I don't know, Dog and Duck or Bluey or, you know, something else, then as an in, if I'd been writing for an indie, then the rates would have been nearly 10 times hmm. what you would have get for writing for a BBC in-house show, which is just a factor of the economies of how the shows were made. And then when I was writing for Doctors, uh, my first four episodes, I was deemed to be an inexperienced writer. So I got the starter's fee 
which at the time for a half hour episode, I think was two and a half thousand pounds. And then after I'd had two hours of credits under my belt, the BBC deemed me to be an experienced writer. So my rate went up by 50% at that point for every script thereafter. I mean, that, that's um, an entire advance from a mid-sized press in the UK. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, and if you wrote an episode of Doctors, the actual scripting of it was, I think you had five, it was six weeks from commission to cameras start rolling because they make 200 plus episodes a year. Cause it's a soap. It's like a telenovela basically. It's, it's on almost the, the only time it's off is Christmas and during Wimbledon because we have blanket coverage of Wimbledon on the BBC. So doctors rests for two weeks while people play tennis on grass somewhere. When I was writing for River City, that was an hour. And I think my kill fee was somewhere between six and eight grand. And if I'd actually got the full fee, if they had gone with my episode, I think that would have been 12 to 15 grand. Again, this is a few years ago now. And it used to be you got residuals if it got repeated. I think now they mostly do buyouts. So they you get your fee and you get your fee again. So they never have to pay you after that, but they basically double your fee. So some of the money you can make if you're writing hour-long dramas is is really good. But to get there is the challenge. Yeah. 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 And it's you have to write all these calling card scripts to demonstrate your powers of originality and your and your craft skills to then be hired to write somebody else's characters and somebody else's stories for years because you have to write for soap operas or continuing drama to then progress where you might be able to get your own show. And it's a real, I mean, it's a total lottery ticket. And you can spend years writing scripts that never get made. I mean, there are people who, who make a, a couple of friends of mine have made lucrative living 10 years doing development work for film and TV and nothing ever gets shown. It never gets made. It never goes into production, but they keep getting paid to write new scripts and develop stuff, but it never gets made. And I'm, as a writer, I write to be read. So that's why I ended up, that's yep. why I gave up on, on TV because I wanted to be read and my agent and two people wasn't enough. So yeah, if you want to break into, if you want to break into TV, you have to have uh, a TV agent. If you want to break in film, into film, ultimately you're going to need an agent and you're probably going to need a manager as well and a lawyer if you're going to break into film because otherwise you're going to get completely ripped apart. But you can break in. So there are contests that you can get noticed on, things like the Nichols Scholarship. So there are avenues that you can get in and you can draw attention to yourself, which is how I got my first telly gig hmm. was uh, I entered a script in a competition, short film script in a competition, and it won a prize in L.A., and that got me some interest and notification and that got me a radio job and that got me a telly job. And that was before I had an agent. So I actually got my first, I think I got my first TV commission before I had an agent. And then I had to run around and quickly get an agent because like, shit, uh, it's like the guys like, you know, the horses in front of the car or the cats in front, no, the cats in front of the horse. You knew what I meant. Yeah. I've heard of Blacklist and a few others. I know they're... Yeah. Yeah. Blacklist is a great example of that. And yeah. there's a UK equivalent of that as well, whereby... So you can write the amazing calling card script and it can never get made, but you can use that script to get you jobs on other people's shows for years afterwards. And then the goal is always to try and get your own show commissioned. Hmm. And then other people come in and write your characters. Yeah. Not too dissimilar. So the guy who invented a show called Death and Paradise, that's had like 11 seasons now and it's got a spinoff show as well. Well, that's him sorted for life. But that's that's the freakish one out of you know thousands of screenwriters because there's so many screenwriting programs pumping out new screenwriters who have got their masters or their MFA in screenwriting every year and they can't all get jobs. Yep, totally makes sense. 
So how does that compare to, uh, you know, we've discussed the world of novels and how vast the the range of pay can be in the novel world. And that gave us a bit of a, a bit of insight, at least to how much TV, at least, might pay if you're <laughs> lucky enough to to find yourself uh, writing for one. How does that compare to IP and freelance work in the novel world? Because you mentioned you had done quite a bit there as well. Is is that a is that an avenue worth exploring for for people looking for some extra cash, or did you find it not worth the time in terms of? compensation i mean uh the time work is a bit like writing for superhero comics actually in that you can if you can write fast enough you can generate enough work so that you can make a comfortable living but you'll never make quite enough to be able to quit yeah <laughs> so yeah. it's like you know it's the perfect trap it's yeah. the gilded cage i think who was it dave gibbons called it the Gild- gilded cages comics well tie-in is the same if you can produce enough work if you can write fast enough then you can have a perfectly lucrative living so i was I think I was grossing about £40,000 a year for about eight years in a row with a load of time work. And some of them were paying royalties and some of them weren't paying royalties. And some people were meant to pay royalties. There was one particular uh, company who I'm not going to name because actually they still owe me royalties. I usually save that for direct messages. But yeah, uh, so some time work you will get royalties for. And yay, there's a correlation between if you do a time book then the hope is, you know, it used to be for a long time, a Star Wars tie-in book was like the holy grail for a lot of time writers. Because like instant New York Times bestseller status, that was it, bam. You now had New York Times bestseller next to your name for the rest of your career. You didn't have to talk about the fact that it was actually for Boba Fett's nephew, volume six, because who cares? You're still a New York Times bestseller. That's all, that's, you, that can go on the headstone. So you can make a decent living, particularly if you can write fast. I mean, if you're sort of, you know, if you're going to agonize over every word, then tie-ins is not the way forward for you because <laughs> you've got to be able to, to pump it out fast. I mean, particularly if you're writing like film novelizations, those are notorious for how fast they have to be written. Mm. Like some of them a week, two weeks to do 80 to 100,000 words. Now, admittedly, they hand you the screenplay, but uh, so you've, the story's all there. You just need to add description, but there's no guarantee you've actually seen the film or even a rough cut of the film. So I did a, I did a comics adaptation of the film by the guys who made a Train Spotting. Yeah. Uh, so Danny Boyle, who did Slumdog Millionaire and a bunch of other things, right? So his first film was Shallow Grave, which was a big sort of underground hit, and then they did Train Spotting, and I think the the screenwriter won the Oscar for that. And then the next film is called uh, A Life Less Ordinary with uh, Ewan McGregor and Cameron Diaz. And I think Stanley Tucci's in it as well. I mean, it's got an amazing cast and it's just a train wreck of a film. And I did the comics adaptation of that. And they literally showed us, I think, 20 minutes of the rough cut because they were still editing it two weeks before it was due out. <laughs> and and they gave me some color photocopies of images from the shooting and the rest we just had to imagine. <laughs> and... And I did, I yeah, I did a, I did a novella which was when they rebooted the TV show Heroes. You know, Jill needed my safe uh-huh. world, and they yep, brought yep. it back with the terrible, terrible Heroes Reborn. Uh-huh. Why, why? Well, money. But um, yeah, so I did the novelization of the pilot episode of that, and they showed me like bits of the footage, and I think I was able to take screen grabs without them noticing it while it was on my computer because it's the only way I could try and remember what the fuck it all looked like. Uh, and then I had to try and turn it into a novella. It was just a nightmare. And that, I think I had three weeks to do it in. 
So a lot of time work has to be done insanely fast, particularly movie-based stuff. TV, sometimes it can be, but a lot of TV stuff, it's more like original stories in the world of. So therefore, you're bringing a lot of yourself to it. You're not just blurting out a prose version of the screenplay, which is a straight novelization. So there's two different things. You're telling me that begging Stephen Knight to let me write the novelization of Peaky Blinders, assuming that doesn't already exist, because it might, that's not my uh, ticket to retirement. Well, it would depend upon the deal. I mean, it's a dead show now, so probably not at this point. I mean, um, I think, I mean, with time work, I think it really helps if you... If you well, it really helps if you love the property that you're writing for, or at least that you really, really like it. Because otherwise, it's torture. Yeah. If you if you're having to write a thing that you hate, and then you just have to grind it out, then it is just, you know, you might as well be writing pamphlets for the Republican Party. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you might as well just you might as well just like you know, you've got. I think you have to love it. So a friend of mine, anyway. So he's done a ton of tie-in stuff and a ton of original stuff, very successfully. And he was offered the chance to write computer games because he writes computer games as well as praise for Harry Potter. When Harry Potter, the first one was just coming out and they're going to do the computer game. And it was like, and everybody was like, oh, this job, it's going to be, it's going to be money forever because they're going to make so many films and there's seven books. And this is it. You, you, this is, you're going to be sorted for, for computer games work for the next 10 years, mate. And he's like, yeah, but I hate Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm like, no, it, I can't, I can't, he just he could not do the job because he just he hated Harry Potter so much long before things occurred. Uh, so you know, and then, so he he turned it down. He turned down like ten years of work because he just went no, I no, I because otherwise you're, you're signing up for a bad marriage, really. So are there? Do you think there are pitfalls? Maybe I don't know if this is too broad a question, but I guess pitfalls that you could maybe advise writers who are looking at IP work because I do actually have a writer friend who signed with IP work and got burned by it very badly and I think without trying to go into too much detail basically they did all the work on the assumption that this was going to materialize but I think the contracts hadn't actually been signed and then oh yeah mm, yeah yeah that that's the red flag on the play basically yeah that's just like I mean the only the only time I've done significant work on a project like the actual drafting of the project started drafting the project was for the bbc because the bbc is such a big monolith and actually because they're publicly funded they they can easily be shamed whereas private companies cannot be shamed for the most part you know i've written stuff for for book publishers where i'm not sure they're still going so i'm going to name them chrysalis books i wrote stuff for a book that they were doing about superheroes or, or something and it was £100 they owed me, and I chased them for 18 months to get £100. If it had been £90, I would have given up, but it was £100, and I went, no, you know what, this is three figures. I want my bloody money, you bastards. So I just kept chasing them and eventually <laughs> wore them down, and they gave it to it's me. It's the principle um, of the thing. I chased the people yeah. that organised London Comic Con for 30 quid because I paid them 30 quid for, like, a, a Bernard Cribbins. Was it Bernard Cribbins? Is that his name thing? Yes. Uh, and he did an appearance, and he cancelled. And that was actually the last time he would have done an appearance because he died like a month later or something. Yeah. <laughs> but they were like, no, you, you, we're not, we don't want to give you a refund. You can use it again. I was like, this man has literally died. What, what events? <laughs> how am I going <laughs> like, to... And it was only 30 we're quid. Doing but... with, a, with a Ouija board? How, how we get yes. this on the signature of the page? Yeah, I know it's not writing related, but for, yeah, for stuff like that, I do chase because it just winds me up when they sit on money. It's like, yeah, that 30 quid is nothing to a corporation. Just pay it. Yeah. <laughs> No, 
types. So the reality, of course, for us as writers is that we end up having to do a lot of spec work. Like you write an entire novel on spec, effectively, in the hope that there's going to be a pay down there, payday down the road for it. But if it's IP work, then you really need to see the colour of the contract. You need to have a contract and you need to know what you're signing up for, what the terms are. Uh, and if you don't have that, then you have to then you have to withhold your labour. It's as simple as that. And the problem is, they get you two ways. Either because the money sounds like it's going to be so good for so little work, um, uh, or else because you love the property. So if somebody offered you, I don't know, let's say that your socks roll up and down for Indiana Jones and they'd offer you the chance to do Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny's Child, then you'd be like, yes, please, I would love to do that. I will write the novelization of that. You don't have to pay me just the chance to play with those particular set of toys. And then they've got you. So then they can just, you know, do what they want because you've already rolled over at this point. So you have, if you're going to do IP work, you have to see the contract or you have to know the person for years and trust that things will be okay. And look, when I did, I, I did a job with one particular person and that, that's how I got the Heroes Reborn thing, which was, yeah. And then they offered me another gig and it all went belly up because we were dealing with a company in another country and then they changed their mind. It was going to be a serialized novel uh, to be read on mobile phones. So each chapter had to be exactly three and a half thousand words long. And they're going to be publishing one a week or one a month or something. And then people would read the new episode when it dropped and it was going to be this whole thing. And then so we wrote like 35,000 words of this, me and a co-writer. And I said, oh, no, we just want it to be a novel. Turn that 35,000 words into 70,000 words and we'll make it into a novel. All right, we'll rewrite the whole thing. And we did that. And then they still didn't publish it. And I was just like, oh, oh. And I just, I just dipped this around. And you just went, hmm. Change, they changed the terms, but they didn't rewrite the contract. I was like, no, this is bad form. But there were people in another country and you can't, it's hard to argue with somebody in a different time. So get a contract. If you got a, if you got a, you know, if you got a literary agent, then they can go and fight those battles for you is what it boils down to. And that's why a literary agent is helpful. Do you think that screenwriting is a skill that's worth authors learning if they have the kind of time and inclination? And, and I guess the reason I asked that is because I remember very early on um, when Book Eaters was kind of being passed around to different film people. And I asked my agents, like, should I be learning screenwriting? Will that help chances if I learn that to then maybe do a script myself? And they basically said, well, you can learn screenwriting if you want, but you'll probably spend all your time writing other people's scripts and you won't get to write your own because you're a debut author. And and um, it increases the chances of a book being turned into a film or TV if, if a, an experienced screenwriter is attached, which is not you. So. Yeah, I mean, like, so so for my series, because I've done so much time working, I don't own the rights in any of that, or if I do, it doesn't really count. So for my own, I've got my own series now, which I know will never be turned into a film or TV project because it's set in the past, and that's plus 25% on the budget before anybody's done anything at, at a bare minimum. But if they were to say, right, well, we'd love to turn this into a hopefully TV series, then the question then becomes, well, would I ask to write the first draft of the first script? Because um, I have some screenwriting experience, I could. there's an argument to be made for that, and they would have to pay me for the privilege of doing that. But I know they would just sack me off it afterwards and replace me with somebody that they actually wanted on it, because that's what would happen. So there's a very well-known uh, writer of science fiction in the UK whose novel was turned into a series on a well-known streaming network, something to do with a large river I couldn't speculate for the first episode of that adaptation, I know somebody who also worked on it, they did somewhere in the read, oh, let's say it was over a hundred drafts of the first episode. A wow. hundred, it was like, it was in development for seven years. Seven years. 
And that writer didn't write another book during that time, strangely enough, because they were just trapped in development hell over here. I mean, they're getting paid for their labor and everything else. Not like they were starving while they were doing it. But you just go, oh, my God, I could not write 100 drafts of anything. My eyes would explode. So, No, so this is not going to happen. This is a bit of a tangent, uh, but you brought up Amazon and, and Amazon's video arm. How does a production as bad as the Rings of Power uh, show happen? <laughs> this is a, this is a real question, and I'm not just trying to shit on that particular thing. I have others that I hate so much. <coughs> uh, Wheel of Time. <coughs> uh, I mean, they just put so much money into the Rings of Power and the Wheel of Time adaptation, and you see all these others that have huge budgets, have you know their pick of any writer in the entire world. Theoretically, you would think they'd have budget for CGI, but that did not show through on Rings of Power. And then you have certain studios who seem to have at least a better hit rate, right? Like, so BBC seems to kick ass with uh, at least several of their dramas. The you know the Last Kingdom was excellent. Uh, Peaky Blinders was excellent. They have Sherlock, Poldark, whatever else. You have a few on Netflix like Stranger Things, and HBO tends to do you know really solid shows with what seems like at least to me good writing more often than not. And then you get these others, right? Like how 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 with literally. Everything at their disposal, do they fuck it up so badly? Well, the simple answer is that money does not fix everything. Yeah. An mm -hmm. unlimited budget, weirdly, is less helpful. Because basically, if you have the infinite canvas, you can never fill it up, right? Well, if you've got the infinite budget, you can keep spending money forever, but it doesn't mean it's going to be any good. It's like you can only put so many horses in front of a carriage, it's not going to get any faster. Yeah. Uh, or any better because of that, because you've got that many horses in front of it. Well, you can, instead of spending 5 million, you can spend 500 million making it. It doesn't make it 100 times better. It just makes it 100 times more expensive. So the, the, the money spent and the quality of the show are two things that are unrelated to one another. And it takes a lot to disengage those two things in your, in your head. But that's the reality of it. I mean, I'm amazed that any film is any good because... <laughs> There's so many people in between the writer and whatever it was that they produced and the thing that ends up on screen, you know, there's a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand people between that and the final product. And it's and although the numbers aren't quite as big in telly, it is effectively the same thing. It's that many people bringing their own interpretation or not to yeah. the creativity of the thing. And does that strengthen the the core and the essence of it, or does it dilute what you're trying to do? Yeah. So I wrote so I wrote four episodes of Doctors, and the first three, I was, like, really proud of them. And then the fourth episode, they used to send me through the advanced disc of it, and I watched the fourth episode, and I was watching it, and the skin wanted to crawl up my arms and leap off my spine because it was so unspeakably bad. And I was watching this going, have I forgotten how to write? What the fuck happened here? This is terrible television. And it was like, and I suddenly realised... I mean, yeah, the script wasn't the best in the world, but I suddenly went, oh, this is what bad direction is. Oh, I understand. You know, because people never blame the director. They always blame the writers because they think the problems start from the script. And maybe they do, but a great director and good actors can make something good. 
But if something, you know, you can kill good writing with bad performance or bad direction or editing, all the other yeah. things happen. But there's just so many people involved in the process. Yeah. And you get so far down the road. And it's like, I don't know. I, I did watch the whole of The Rings of Power, and I sincerely doubt I will watch season two. Yeah. But we watched The Cold Open. There's an Amazon show called Citadel. I hardly recommend. Um, yeah, watch the first six episodes, six minutes, and then turn it off again because you'll be like, oh my giddy aunt, no. And it's just, I just went, geez, how much money have they spent on this? And it's just like, no, there's no, why? I, I do. Oh, Stanley Tucci, have some self respect. Yeah, I, I do wonder if the corporate nature of Amazon itself has infected their studio, right? And if there are just far too many middle managers and and <laughs> senior managers, et cetera, who have way too much input on scripts and and direction and cuts and edits and things like that. But I mean, HBO belongs to a you know a, a conglomerate uh, corporation as well, and they still turn out things like House of the Dragon, which was extremely well done. You know, you you look at. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's the other thing is like it's to separate out from the. You don't know where the problem is. I mean, it, it's this vast food chain, and there's many, many people who have got their hands in the pants of this unfortunate program or whatever it might be, and you just don't know who's meddling with what somewhere and where this is being fucked up effectively. There's yeah. so many opportunities for it to go wrong. Whereas with a novel, the joy of a novel, it's like it's you. There's an editor. Maybe if your edit, if your agent is editorially minded and they're they're involved. That's it. There's really only like a handful of people between the idea that you had and the book that's in somebody's hand or on their Kindle they're listening to his audio. And that's it. So it is kind of all on you. And therefore, there is the capacity for you to just speak directly into the minds of, of your readers, which is why I come back to prose ultimately, because I just went, the money is better in tally, but to what purpose? How, how are you finding that being back in a novel world? Is it good? Is it bad? <laughs> Um, it's good, yeah. I mean, obviously, because I'm doing the book a year thing. So I'm writing crime. I'm writing historical crime. And they said to me at the start, will you be a book a year kind of author? And I could have said, no. No, I think, you know, the pressure of other things on my plate means that, no, I'm not going to be a book a year author. But I said, no, because I'd always wanted to be a book a year author. Because I love writers who come up with a great new book each year and you look forward to it and you get hold of it. You're like, oh, the next one in the series, yay. And that, so I had always wanted to be there. And it's... I don't know whether I lack ambition, but the, I I aspire to be midlist. Honestly, if I could be midlist, I that that's I would. I'm not gonna say I'd die happy. I'm not gonna die happy. I'm gonna be dying, dying pissed off because I'm dying. But nonetheless, I would be. You know, I'd be like, yes, midlist, way. You know, because that's having spent so long in the trenches of tie-in and comics, and then you know the less salubrious ends of television to be in an industry where you get treated with respect where they say okay we have some feedback for you but it's your book so you can take these suggestions or not and i that is not the world of telly i tell you that right now they're like you're doing this or you're or you're doing this and you're making it what we want it to be or you're fine and it's as simple as that that that's not how book publishing is in 99 percent of the examples i've ever heard of unless you've got some complete maniac running the company or in charge or I did have one, it was a tie-in book. I didn't want to write it. It was, a, it was my fourth, fifth and final Judge Dredd tie-in book and I didn't want to write it at all. I was persuaded to do it so I could write something else I did want to write for the publisher. 
And so to keep myself from falling asleep while I was writing it, I wrote a load of gratuitous innuendo and smut into the book. And that was fine. I was having a, I was having a blast, frankly. And then it turned out the copy editor they got to do the book was the world's biggest prude who hated anything sexual and didn't believe it at any place in fiction. And I was like, but the copy edits were done. But the nature of this, because it was tie-in work, you don't see the copy edits. They just get done and then the book appears. And I remember reading it going, where's all my, where's all my smut? My smut's gone. They've, they've, they've literally taken the, all the, the stuff I was looking forward to reading. Going, oh, yeah, that's a bit rude, honestly. I can't believe it. I got away with nothing. I just took it all back out. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> that was the only reason I wrote that and four grand that you paid me. That was the only reason I did this stupid book. And it's still in, it's still bloody in print in an ebook forever. And I'm like, ugh. I think we should have more midlists, honestly. Like, I think one of the things that saddens me about publishing is that midlist is sort of dwindling just because everything is moving towards more and more extremes, towards the big titles with a lot of money or people paid very, very little. And, you know, wanting to be a midlist author was like a thing that you could aspire to at one point and still make a living and still be really happy and have your niche and have your, your fans and your followers. And, without, I guess, the pressure of being the next Stephen King. So, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the you know, when I got my contract for, for the first two books in the Aldo series and and, and I was, was told, and, you know, the number was negotiated, and I went, right, okay. So on that basis, you're going to support the book well, but there was no, in most trade publishing, certainly in the UK, if they're not spending six figures on your advance, there will be no marketing. There will be publicity. All the publicity in the world, they will do their best to try and generate coverage and all the rest. But there's not actually going to be, like, nobody's putting up ads on the tube or on buses or anything else. You're not going to see it anywhere except hopefully the bookshops because that's a separate job. So, you know, I got my contract and went, yeah, okay, all right. So I'm not going to be an overnight sensation. I'm not going to be, you know, there's no, there's, there's not the equivalent of crates in crime, largely speaking. So therefore... You've got two choices in, in trade publishing. Either you're the skyrocket, and then the hope is you can sustain that thereafter, or else you have to be the little engine that could, and you just have to keep chugging away and, and putting out the books and raising the quality and raising awareness and, and getting out there and pimping your book and hustle, hustle, hustle. So I'm on path two, and that's what I'm doing. You hear that, so Scott? Get to it. <laughs> Yeah, come on. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well. <laughs> hmm. But I mean, you know, in Scott, in your case, the reality is what you can do is you can write a different book and you can get a different contract. And, you know, you, you this it, every new book or every new series is potentially, if not the lottery ticket, then it's at least a different path that you can take. I will decline yeah. to comment on that just now. But yes. <laughs> well, that, put it back I'll put it to you another way. So I'm in my 50s, and yet here I am. I'm reinventing myself as a Midwest crime author, having spent years writing science fiction and fantasy and horror and war and all these other things, and people in tights hitting each other, you know, men in tights and capes hitting each other, which is its own special homoerotic world of excitement uh, that we call comics. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm out of questions, but I was going to ask if you, you know, if you want to tell people who listen where they could find you or you know what you've got going on i know you mentioned some of your books earlier already but a recap of them might be good oh yes <laughs> i am that relentless i will just keep mentioning the book uh yeah so uh yes you can where can you find me uh well i'm still on twitter at the moment i haven't quite left the hell site 
Uh, so I'm at David Bishop on Twitter because I joined Twitter so long ago I got my own name. Instagram, I'm at Cesare Aldo. So C-E-S-A-R-E-A-L-D-O. And obviously also on threads, I'm at Cesare Aldo. I think I'm still on TikTok, although I don't think I've done anything. Some very silly videos indeed there. And my website is uh, dvbishop.com. And yeah, um, yes, the first book of my series is called City of Vengeance. I suggest people start at the beginning. Yeah, because that's nearly earned out, that one. So. <laughs> okay, that sounds awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later. See you later.